Thank you very much. Thank you. Greetings from Malawi. Say morning, everyone. Morning. Ziko Mo. I'm a Lambia, and uh, briefly, just for one minute. When I was little, I was told that uh, our problems as a people and as a nation were there because of white people and Christians. They told me that uh, a white man hates me. And because of that, I shouldn't believe when he teaches, teaches me about Christ. Heaven doesn't exist. If it existed, a white man would have kept it a secret. By him telling me it exists and inviting me to share heaven with him one day, it means it doesn't exist. It's a lie. Because of that, I started my own little church when I was in junior high. Uh, we called it the Enemies of Jesus Christ. Central School, Bidibiga, University of Malawi, it was big. While there, a professor from this nation, Dick Day, he has co-authored books with Josh McDowell. He came to Malawi, heard about my church, and gave me more than a carpenter, and uh, the evidence that demands a project. I read them, and also, because of that, I came to find that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. So Dick Day's life, those books, convinced me that I was taking my nation to hell. Now, today I'm a believer, because someone loved me. It's good to know that you are a Christian. It's better to show that you are one, Right? Love and kindness will convert more people to Christ than any amount of zeal. Okay? I'll leave you with this. The ocean never dries, right? Okay? Streams that feed it dry, right? Okay. The ocean is lower. It's humble. Streams are higher. They dry. They feed the ocean. Rage in me. Dick Day humbled himself. He drained the poison from me. Remember this. The ocean. Right? God bless you. When he told you that he started a church when he was in junior high, the church was called the Church Against Jesus Christ. When he was in junior high, three to four hundred people started attending his church. He is one of those people who is adamantly opposed to Christianity and to the things of Christ and has been wonderfully and powerfully saved. And um, his country faces some very, very difficult times in the weeks and months ahead. But I suspect um, that you're going to see some incredible things. Again, for those of you who take the time and just do a little research, and uh, I have every reason to believe that he will probably be elected the president of this country. So, again, we're going to continue to pray for him and, um, and pray for his country and pray how God is going to use him. I wish he could have spent more time with us, he, and so he's got a, a pressing engagement. But let's just take a moment and pray for our study and pray for him, for his wife, and for his children, or his one child. Heavenly Father, we do pray for the great country of Malawi. Lord, we, we pray in particular for the many, many people who haven't come to know you, to, to know you, Lord, but also for the 20% of the population who, are, who embrace Islam. Lord, we pray for James. We pray that you will give him wisdom and understanding. Lord, we pray like the prophet of old that he would do what is just. He would love mercy and he would walk in humility with you. Lord, we pray that as you raise him up, you will use him in remarkable ways. And Heavenly Father, we know that he faces severe persecution and opposition. And so, Lord, we pray for him and his family, for his wife and for his child. Lord, we pray that you would keep them safe. And again, Father, we pray that you would use him to bring many, many people to Jesus as he declares love and loyalty to you. And again, Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters there. 
Lord, now open up our hearts. We pray that we would receive from you and from your spirit. Lord, we pray that we would have confidence that your promises are true. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to continue our study in John's Gospel. We find ourselves in the sixth chapter, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 37 through 40. In John chapter 6, beginning in verse 37, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. And I will raise Him up at the last day. Throughout John's Gospel, people have broadly had two responses to the message of Jesus. One has been belief. The other has been unbelief. In chapter 6, Jesus has already shown signs walking on the water, feeding the 5,000 in verses 1 through 21. He preaches the sermon that he is the true bread that has come down from heaven in verses 22 all the way to verse 65. And in the process of the sermon, Jesus reveals his person and his mission in verses 32 through 40. He also reveals the process of salvation and the power of salvation. And so this sermon goes from signs to sermon to sifting. Sifting because with the message is going to come an appeal, a call. The Lord is going to ask us to judge between right and wrong and good and evil and truth and error. And so the crowd desiring bread for their body winds up rejecting the bread for their soul, the bread of life, the true bread that has come from God, that was meant to enrich the soul. Now, the confusion of the crowd in Capernaum and the rejection and the refusal of the people to believe their rejection and their refusal will not frustrate the plan of God. Now, that is an important principle that each and every one of you should tuck away somewhere. The plan of God, the mission of God, the will of God will not be frustrated by your belief or unbelief, by what you do or don't do. God will accomplish his plan. The crowd may twist the mission and the message of Jesus. They may demand more evidence. They may refuse to admit their hunger. They may reject and refuse to confess their own thirst. They may refuse to believe in Him. But they're not going to frustrate the plan of salvation. They're not going to frustrate the will of God towards those who believe. Their unbelief will never have an effect on your ability or inability to believe. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus will give several promises, assurances that apply to the believer in Jesus. The first is God's choice, predestination. The second is God's promise. The third, Jesus will link the assurance of the believer to the purpose of Jesus' mission, to do God's will. And that will includes the future safety of those the Father give to the Son and God's ultimate will for the believer in verse 40. Now, in the little epistle of Jude, the half-brother of Jesus describes believers as, quote, those who are the called kept for Jesus Christ. It's the opening verse in Jude. At the end of his little letter, he writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his throne. 
and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. In the New Testament, the promise and blessing of assurance and security is always in association with personal repentance and faith so that Jesus affirms that heaven belongs to everyone who beholds the Son and everyone who believes the Son. It's they who have eternal life. And eternal life, in order to really and truly be eternal, by its very nature, must be unending. When I was a young man driving up and down the freeways of Southern California every day, Jay Vernon McGee would come on the radio and I would join the Bible bus as he marched through the Bible. And one of the things that J. Vernon McGee was fond of saying is he would say, I believe in the assurance of the believer. And then he would say, and I believe in the non-assurance of the make-believer. And I thought, that strikes the perfect balance that I think that the scriptures teach. How does God save people? In every generation, in every dispensation, from Adam to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, from Abraham to David, from David to John the Baptist, salvation always included three things. Salvation is always by blood. Innocent blood. Shed blood. Innocent shed blood that is applied to the believer. And number two, salvation is always through a person. And number three, salvation is always by grace. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, the prophet wrote, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is None other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12. James Nyota was recently asked by the press about his beliefs concerning Jesus Christ. And they asked him in his country, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way? And he says, yes, I believe that Jesus is the only way. He quoted Acts chapter 4, verse 12, neither is there salvation in any, any other, for there is no other name. And they said, you can't say that. Because you asked me what I believe. You didn't ask me what they don't believe. You asked me what I believe. You didn't ask me what they don't believe. The Bible teaches that there is no other name. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, it says, And being made perfect, he, made, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all that obey him. Salvation is always by blood. Salvation is always through a person. Salvation is always by grace. No wonder Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes to the young protege and he says for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men grace has appeared in the in the form of a person it's the savior and the grace is preceded by the sinner's faith therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ it says in Romans chapter 5 verse 1 it says in Hebrews 11, but without faith, it's impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Grace is followed by the Savior's peace. Romans one to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace and peace to you. And so we begin with the father's predestination. Look at verse 37 again. All that the Father gives me will come to me. It bears repeating. 
all that the Father gives to me will come to me. The meaning of the verse is crystal clear. The stress isn't simply on predestination. It's the assurance Jesus is giving to his disciples, to the believer. If Jesus is any indication, the Bible is promoting and teaching that human beings who see Jesus and believe Jesus, human beings are gifts that the Father prepares for the Son. You see, you're not just simply a person with your own life and your own circumstances. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that you were created by God for God. You were given a brain so you could think about Him. You were given a heart so you would be passionate about Him. You were given a mouth so that you would be able to communicate with Him. You were created by God to live in life of of freedom and friendship and fellowship with the Son. You were created by God to be a gift that the Father gives to the Son. You're not just your husband's wife. You're not just your wife's husband. You're not just your mom and dad's child. You are a gift that's been given by the Father to the Son. Jesus points out that it is God Himself who has drawn the believer. And you know why that's important? Because some of you might foolishly think, did I create this in my own brain? Am I just believing that the Bible and Jesus is true because it's wishful thinking? And I hope to God that it's true. But I can't be sure. You remember the old song by Blood, Sweat, and Tears? I swear there ain't no heaven, but I pray there ain't no hell. Swear there ain't no heaven, and I pray there ain't no hell. But I'll never know by living, because only my dying will tell. It's only my dying will tell, yeah. And you think, wow, is it a joke? Is Is this something that was just made up in order to make me feel good? But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that it is the Father who draws you. It is the Spirit of God and the work of God who moves upon you and stirs you and then brings you to the place where you can come to Christ. If I could talk you into accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then someone a little more clever than me could talk you out of it. But that's different if the Father draws you, stirs you, awakens you, convicts you. As a matter of fact, Jesus will emphasize that point in verse 44. If you want to take a quick look, just go to verse 44 in chapter 6 where it says, No man can come to me except the Father who has Drawn him. Now we're going to talk more about that next week. But we should pause for a moment and ask the question. Does the New Testament present the concept of predestination? And I think that the answer is yes. For those of you who are unfamiliar with that word predestination, what does it mean? It simply means to know ahead of time. It means to determine ahead of time. The word predestination is the Greek word proridzo, and it means to ordain or to make a choice ahead of time. Paul, in writing to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 29, uses that exact word. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, proridzo, he predestined to be conformed into the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, and also in verse 11, it boldly states, He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure, in accordance with his will. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God loved you from the very beginning. God knew you from the very beginning. God drew you from the very beginning. 
God constantly, persistently, consistently drew you and loved you and encouraged you. Does that somehow make God responsible for sin or wicked behavior or or sinful choices? The fact that He made human beings over and over again in John's Gospel, things are controlled and happen as God means them to happen. The purpose of God is being done over and over again. The consistent testimony of the Bible is He controls all things. He is sovereign. He rules and reigns. John chapter 1 verse 12. John chapter 6 verse 44. John chapter 10 verse 20, 26. Well again, does this somehow make God responsible for sin? For Responsible for wicked behavior. Responsible for sinful choices that human beings make. The answer must be no. God is incapable of wickedness. God is incapable of evil. We do God a disservice each and every time that we impugn to the Lord anything that smacks of wickedness. Or evil. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. What is it that God knew in, exam- in, in advance? Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. He predestined certain people to be molded and shaped and made into the character of Christ. When you woke up this morning, you probably had a different idea. You woke up. Most of you, hopefully, prayerfully took a shower. Some of you ladies put makeup on. Some of you men did also. We'll talk to you after the service. You want to make sure that your hair is right and your makeup is right and and that you look a particular way because you know that people are going to be looking at you. I'm constantly aware of that when I'm here on Sunday. That's why my wife dresses me. I, you know what? Every, every Sunday I feel sorry for you guys. And I pray and I go, oh, Lord, they're going to have to look at me. But, so, you know what? I'm not even a tiny bit offended when you turn away. But God, from the very beginning, wanted to mold you and shape you, to conform you into the image of his, of his Son, to mold you and shape you into the character of Christ. And so, that's God's plan. It was always God's plan to mold you and make you like Jesus. And look at the Son's promise. It says at the end of verse 37, And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Now this is interesting because the illusion that seems to be taking place as Jesus is speaking is the fact that the Father draws, but the Son, well, can he weed out the undesirable? When God calls and draws and then brings a particular person to a particular place where they will consider Jesus, does Jesus look at you and go, Dad, this is a a mistake. This is a mistake. How could you call that person and draw that person? Let's go with option number two. Where my friend James comes from in, in Malawi, His father is the hereditary king of the country. What he didn't tell you is that his mother is one wife of 100 wives. Because his mother is one wife of 100 wives, but she is the chief wife and the first wife. And he is the hereditary king so that even though he has many half-brothers and half-sisters, he is the crown prince. And when he came to the United States of America to to study the king, his father said, we have prepared three wives for you. And he says, father, I found a wife. No, the wife must be from the tribe. And he prayed. And his mother said, you will let the boy marry for love. Now, I want you to think about it. In the ancient world, a father... And a mother would enter into an arrangement for a son to marry. The father has arranged that you would be 
the constant companion of Christ forever. Now that's the key to understanding this passage. The Father has arranged that you would be Christ's constant companion. So that when the Father presents you to the Son, the Son then falls hopelessly and helplessly in love with you forever. Do you understand what's happening? That's why Jesus will say, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. We live in a culture and a society that still, I mean, I know many people are involved in online dating. And I guess through whatever mechanisms they arrange to meet each other and get to know one another. In our culture and society, if you want to go out with someone, you have to ask them out, don't you? Now, I don't know if you've ever, I know many of you are married, and it's maybe been a very long time since you asked somebody out. If you're a girl and you ask a guy out, if you're a guy and you ask a girl out, you run a terrible risk, don't you? If I ask this person out, they could say, no, thank you. Or worse, they could say, in your dreams. When you have someone say, in your dreams, over and over again, it puts a lot of pressure on you. And for some people, they wonder if the same is true of Jesus. If they come to Jesus, and Jesus knows their heart, and Jesus knows their circumstances, and Jesus knows their past, that Jesus will say, I'm sorry. Um, I think... This isn't going to work. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that if you believe him and receive him, read it for yourself. I will by no means cast out. In the original language, the sentence is in a double negative. It's a strong, forceful promise. In the original language, it says never, no, never cast out and the reason why he's making this promise it's to eliminate doubt and fear well might there be a circumstance when the father draws the son and then the son says rejected the answer is no make no mistake about it Jesus claims the authority to accept or reject human beings he accepts the person who is drawn by the father who comes to him who believes in him who turns from their sin and repentance and from this world and turns to Jesus Christ so in making this statement Jesus is making an amazing promise as a matter of fact Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away you know what that means? That when Jesus in John chapter 6 is making this promise, he is making the promise to his generation, but he's making it to the next generation and the next generation and every generation. And the promise extends to you and to your family. Will the promise ever be revoked? No. And yes. What does that mean? No. If you come to him, he will accept you. No, there comes a point when you breathe your last breath. There comes a point where your heart stops beating. There comes a point where the electrical activity in your brain is gone. Your heart stops. Your body's dead. You are dead. And so is the offer. That's why it's so important for you to believe him here and receive him here. And look in verse 38, it says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If you're keeping count, like I said, in John chapter 6, in this message of the bread of life, seven times Jesus will repeat the statement, I have come down from heaven. Where did he come from? He came from heaven. Yeah, this is not rocket science. And when he says, I have come down from heaven, note, he says, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
because he claims a divine origin that he has come down from heaven, he's not here on his own doing a scouting or a reconnaissance mission. He has been sent by the Father for a specific reason. Not to do his own will, but to do the will of him who sent him. Jesus is laying a foundation. And so the next assurance Jesus reminds of his listener is that the very purpose that he comes is not to do his own will, but his Father's will. And what is his Father's will? In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, there's an amazing statement that's made. Peter writes, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. One counts slackness, but he is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's the Father's will that you be saved. It's not an afterthought. He loves you. He longs for you. He pleads with you. He draws you. Well, does this mean the Lord isn't slack concerning His promise and that it's His will that none should perish? Well, does that mean that everyone is going to be saved? It can't mean that. You want to know why? Because in this particular chapter and in John chapter, or in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, in the very same context, the wicked are judged and the wicked are punished. Well, how can the wicked be saved and judged and punished at the same time? The answer is they can't. You will be saved or you won't be saved. In John chapter 14, verse 31, it says, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. The reoccurring testimony in the New Testament is that the Father loves the Son and that the Son loves the Father. And that the Father's given you as a desirable and permanent gift. In John chapter 15 and in John chapter 14, there's that reoccurring theme. The believer's assurance is the very assurance that Jesus will fulfill his Father's will. The Lord Jesus doesn't simply try to fulfill the Father's will and fail. He will succeed where you fail and where I fail. Have you ever failed the Father? I suspect that you have. But guess what? Did the Son ever fail the Father? The answer is no. And because you failed and because the Son didn't, The Bible says that the Father accepts the life and the death, the success, the submission, the obedience that you failed in. Assurance isn't based on your success. The assurance isn't based on your failure. When Jesus says something or Jesus purposes to do something, by its very definition, it represents the will of the Father. In John chapter 12, verse 49, it says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say and what I should speak. Jesus didn't make this up. And look at the Father's passion in verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose almost nothing, 80%, 90%, 90%, No, it says that I should lose nothing. And look what it says. But should raise it up at the last day. Was it God's will to send the Son? The answer is yes. We debate all He has given me. And we debate Lose nothing. And to a certain extent, we might debate the nature of the resurrection. But look what Jesus is saying. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing. 
God's will is that Jesus should lose nothing. Now, again, in the original language, this is intense. As a matter of fact, the expression, I should lose nothing, is the Greek expression, ex, apoleso, ex, auto. When it says, I should lose nothing, it means nothing down to the tiniest fragment. Here's the idea. God wills that Jesus should lose nothing, not even a tiny fragment, not even a hand or a foot or an eye, not even a minuscule molecule, not even a single atom. Okay, can we go go lower than an atom? Not even a subatomic particle. Can we go lower than the subatomic particle? I don't know. we're, We're in a mysterious area here. But however low we go, Jesus has made it abundantly clear. He wants you. And He's taking you. And He's not leaving you behind. He's not going to leave you behind. That's the idea. Oddly enough, this is what the expression is saying. I'm not going to lose a tiniest fragment. How can, then how could He lose a whole person? A whole person is a lot bigger than a tiny fragment. In his earthly ministry, Jesus lost none. In John seventeen twelve, Jesus said, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be filled. Aha! There's an escape clause. I knew Jesus lost one. There it is, the son of perdition. I knew there was a catch, and if Jesus can lose Judas. He can lose me. Really? Has the scripture written that you must of necessity be lost? The answer is no. By the way, are you the son of perdition? You know what perdition means, right? Perdition is a biblical euphemism for hell. Are you the son of hell? I hope not. Because the truth is, the Bible makes it abundantly clear. If the Father calls you and draws you, if you hear the message and receive the Lord, He is available to you. That's the whole idea. In order for the Savior to be the Savior, He has to be able to save you. And he has to be willing to save you. So this is the question that the New Testament presents. Does Jesus have the ability to save you? The answer seems to be yes. Is Jesus willing to save you? The answer is yes. It is possible for a person to have the desire to save, but not the ability. Let me give you an example. Imagine you're a doctor. You're standing next to a patient's bed, and you're frustrated by the patient's disease. You don't, even though you have great skill and great training and great medical knowledge, there's nothing more frustrating. There's nothing more frustrating than to be a doctor and sit on the edge of the bed and watch your patient die and you can't do anything about it. Another thing happened many years ago. A man in desperate need of a blood transfusion with a very rare blood type. It was an AB negative blood. He was dying. And there was a relative with the same blood type who could have easily donated the blood but he stubbornly refused and his relative died it's one thing to be able to save it's another thing to be willing to save Jesus is willing and Jesus has the rarest blood type in all of the universe. It's the one type of blood that when it's shed for you in a sacrificial fashion eliminates all of your sin and pays your debt. Is there something magical about Jesus' blood? No. 
But there's something permanently sacrificial about that blood. Perhaps the greatest ability after all is availability. And that's the key. Is Jesus willing? The answer is yes. Is Jesus able? The answer is yes. And the will of God is a most amazing thing. Jesus will save every true believer, even right up to the final hour. By the way, as we march into the future, there will be a final hour. There will, be, there will come a time for humanity where it is the last year and it is the last month and it is the last week and it is the last day and then it is the last hour. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is willing to save you, that the Lord's salvation is complete and ultimate and final. And look what it says in verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life and I will raise Him up at the last day. That's the resurrection day. And we know what everlasting life is. It isn't just simply living forever. It's loving forever and being loved forever. In John chapter 17 verse 3, Jesus puts to rest And declares forever the definition of eternal life. He says in verse 3 of chapter 17, This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life isn't just simply living forever. forever. It's knowing God and being known by God. This week I did a funeral. For Gene Lafferty, a real World War II hero. And at his funeral, I remember telling his family that heaven isn't simply a place where you go when you die, but it's a person that you meet once you get there. The most important thing about heaven is that Jesus is there to meet you. One of these days, I'm going to have the great privilege, hopefully the Lord willing, the Lord willing, to visit the great country of Malawi. Now, the country is beautiful. And the lake is spectacular. And the African parks are almost unbelievable. But you know what's most amazing? I have a friend there. And my friend is the hereditary prince of the people. Do you really want to know your way around someplace? Find the one person who knows everyone. That's exactly what heaven is like. It is your friendship and fellowship with the one person who knows and loves everyone. So what does all this mean? The Lord's salvation is complete and ultimate and final. And the result of seeing Jesus, look in verse 40, the result of seeing Jesus and believing in Jesus is ultimately being raised from the dead. Jesus is emphatic, I will raise him up at the last day. Later in John 11, Jesus will say, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. By the way, how many people do you know who can raise people from the dead? In all of the universe, of all the human beings, of all of the people who have ever made an appearance on the planet, how many do you know can bring people back to life so that they never die? That would be one. That would be one person. So what does all of this mean? It means at least three things. The believer is assured of eternal life. The believer is assured of victory over death. The believer is assured of participation in the resurrection. So in this passage of Scripture, John invites us to hear the words of Jesus and consider Jesus and to see Jesus and to receive Jesus. And the second thing that he invites you to do is to understand and accept the fact that you're safe. That Jesus takes you to a safe harbor. And that He Himself is that harbor. 
Dr. Robert Gromacki lists 12 things by which you can test your salvation experience. I'm going to present them to you for consideration. Listen carefully and quickly. Number one, have you enjoyed spiritual fellowship with God, with Christ, and with fellow believers? That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. Number two, do you have a sensitivity to sin? 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Number two, do you basically obey the Lord Jesus, obey His commandments? That's what it says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And also in the New Testament, if you love me, you'll obey me. And number four, what is your attitude towards this world and towards its values? In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things that are in this world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, they're not of the Father. Do you practice sin less? Not are you sinless, but do you sin less? That's number six. Now that you've professed faith in Jesus, it bears repeating number seven. Do you love other believers. Because if you say, you know, I love God and I love Jesus, it's just Christians who creep me out. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, it says, how can you say that you love God whom you've never seen? If you can't love your brother who you do see? James Nyondo was telling me that when he was a young man growing up, he was absolutely convinced that the white man, it's called Imsungu, the white man, Imsungu, could not possibly know God. He remembers the story that was told when Mahatma Gandhi went to South Africa because he started reading the Bible and considering the claims of Christ and was deeply impressed with the message of Jesus and when he went to the church in South Africa they refused to let him into the church because his skin was dark James Nyondo did the exact same thing he found his wife and married his wife who was from South Africa and he too went to a church and they said you can't come here because it would be too offensive to people and he said, how is it that my presence and the color of my skin could be so offensive to you? And he struggled. It was a, with great difficulty that he realized that so-called ambassadors of Christ don't always represent their Lord. Number eight, have you experienced the joy of answered prayer? That's what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 22. When you pray, does God answer your prayers? Number nine, do you have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit? Like it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, where the Spirit of God is inside of you, bearing witness of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And number ten, do you have the ability to discern between spiritual truth and error? John 10, um, verse 3. 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. Do you test the spirits to see whether they are of God? Do you understand the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, darkness and light, death and life? And number 11, do you know and believe the basic teachings of Jesus and the New Testament? And number 12, have you experienced persecution for your faith, your Christian faith? Have you been persecuted because you know Him and love Him and you have found that your behavior upsets, antagonizes, and otherwise aggravates the unbeliever? Well, if that's the case, that's good news. Because that's a badge of authentication. You know, when something is real and valuable... Almost invariably, someone will create a copy, a fake. There are people who will try to disguise certain metals and pass them off as gold. 
there will be people who will try to disguise and, and pass off certain artifacts as being the genuine article. But they're a fake. They are made and designed to deceive. Now that's what the make-believer is. It's a person who talks the talk but refuses to walk the walk. No wonder J. Hernan McGee would say, I believe in the assurance of the believer. And I believe in the non-assurance of the make-believer. The make-believer can always become a believer by abandoning, by abandoning the superficial and the hypocritical. By peeling away the outward layer and desiring a heartfelt commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Loving Him, serving Him, and walking with Him. The Father has given you to the Son. The Son has accepted that which the Father has given Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your assurance. Lord, we thank you that the, of the reality that if you've drawn us and called us and separated us and presented us to Jesus, we have seen him and believe him that we are saved. Lord, we pray that you'd give us the courage, the wisdom, the strength, the ability, Lord, in your spirit, in humility to submit to you and to walk with you in all that you've called us to do. Lord, we don't want to have to live in the uncertainty and ambiguity. Am I in or am I out? Lord, we thank you that if we come to you, you receive us and you will never, no, never, no, never cast us out. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.